Please join me in corporate prayer this morning. From Genesis 21, the Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me, and everyone who hears will laugh over me. King Jesus, we give thanks for the gift of motherhood and the joy you have fulfilled for them even from the time of Sarah and Abraham. We want to ask for continued hope and perseverance for all the moms here today. Bless them and give them strength for their unappreciated work and their unconditional love for their children. We also give thanks to you for, for your presence here at Covenant Presbyterian Church. Thank you for the provision you have given us and got us to be stewards of our wealth and talents to serve your everlasting kingdom. Lead us, Lord, in our mission to go this summer. We pray for the short-term mission trips and all the outreach events that will take place this summer, including VBS, created and built for a purpose, and the youth retreats. Around the globe, we pray for the MTW team in Honduras. Alex and Maggie Halbert, Aaron and Rachel Halbert, Sovereign Grace Church, and also Forgotten Children Ministries, all in Honduras. As much as this is a hectic and exciting time, there's also sickness and heartache in our congregation. We pray specifically for Mike Whitten as he is going through chemo treatments, give him strength, for Louise Slingliff in recovery from being in the hospital. For Caitlin Birchfield, as she has had surgery this week, we also pray, praise God for the birth of Caroline Barlobin and parents Tori and Miles. Lord, you know all these individuals well. Hold them close in these difficult times. I ask all of this in the precious name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Good morning. It's good to be with you. My name is David Driscoll. I'm one of the assistant pastors here at Covenant. In the last several weeks, we've been looking at 1 Peter. And you could summarize 1 Peter. The, the purpose really is taking the words of Jesus of what does it mean to be in the world, but not of the world. Uh, and really the whole first chapter and kind of bleeding into the second chapter Peter has really spent a lot of time talking about who we are. Um, right out of the gate, he reminds us that we have been exiles, elect exiles, who have been born again to a living hope. So we are those who live in light of the resurrection of Jesus and of Jesus reigning and ruling at the Father's side. And that changes everything. It changes fundamentally who we are, and then it changes how we are called to live. And so starting today in our passage, there's a shift. Peter kind of begins to focus more on how we are called uh, to live. Uh, specifically, he is turning to the critical and practical issue of how we as the people of God are meant to relate to the world around us, to relate to unbelievers. Uh, Peter's focus is going to be on our, uh, the behavioral demonstration of our faith um, towards those who don't believe. Uh, just this week, I saw a tweet uh, from someone many of us would recognize. Uh, uh, he is kind of a leading voice uh, 
of, of American evangelicalism. I use that more in the kind of social political sense, but here's what it said. He said, today on my run through Central Park, I saw four teenagers smoking weed. As I passed them, I shouted in a firm but friendly voice, smells like failure, <laughs> and kept going. I said it as an act of love, honestly. I hope that at some point one of them might think about it. I think this actually illustrates what Peter is trying to drive home to us as the people of God. He's exhorting us of what it looks like to live in relationship with unbelievers in our pluralistic society. Uh, On one hand, he's going to urge us as the people of God to abstain, to refrain from certain things. And then on the other hand, he's going to say there's a way that you're actually to relate to unbelievers in a particular way. And, and this is kind of Peter's governing principle. It's, it's his, we might could say it's his cultural strategy. Now, look, Christians, absolutely, we're going to talk more about it. We should refrain from illicit drugs like marijuana, but we also should treat people with love and honor and respect. And so this actually, this episode in Central Park I, that this person actually proudly documents it actually shows a really poor and unbiblical approach for how we're meant to engage with the world. It's like if Jesus saw the woman at the well and just said, smells like failure and walked on. So I hope and pray that this morning we can hear Peter's exhortation and by the power of the Holy Spirit, we can pursue a better way. So look with me at our passage. Uh, I'm only going to be preaching from verses 11 and 12 of chapter two, but I want us to read verses nine and 10 as well, because It's part of the who we are that Peter has been um, telling us about. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved. I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak evil, they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of his visitation. All flesh is like grass, and all its glory is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. Well, Peter starts our passage off with a very affectionate term. It's actually the first time that he's referenced uh, his readers with beloved. And this is meant to convey, obviously, that we are objects of love, but it's really in two senses that we are objects of love. First, Peter wants us to know that I love you. I, I love Uh, you that I'm writing to. You're a a dear brother or sister in Christ. And he's writing to this, uh, this to us with great, great affection. But second, and in a higher sense, the people of God are the beloved people of God. It's a reminder that God has set his love on us in Jesus. So much so that he loves us in the same way that he loves his own beloved son. And I think Peter wants to remind us of that because he's about to command something of us. He's about to urge something 
of us. He's to urge us towards certain behavior. Because there are ways that we are called to live and interact with people who are not God's people. And he wants us to go into those situations, to go into those relationships as the beloved people of God. He also reminds us that we are exiles and sojourners. Uh, Peter's readers, which includes us, we need to reorient our self-understanding with respect to the society in which we live. You and I are not first and foremost uh, citizens of a particular city, state, or country. Uh, We are citizens first of God's holy nation. So we're to understand ourselves as exiles, as sojourners, as immigrants, as refugees, as wanderers. And because this is true, we will feel tension with the world in which we live because this is not our home. Now, Peter's obviously writing to a very, very different social context. Uh, But our culture is still very antithetical to God's will and the way of Jesus. Uh, One commentator put it this way, the imperial Caesar has been replaced by the imperial self. The American dream has replaced the Pax Romana. Western capitalism still trades in the bodies and souls of human beings. Culture obsesses over sexual freedom and material indulgence. Idolatry is pervasive. Autonomous individualism is the ideal. It's not that different from Peter's world in which he lives. We still have our challenges. Um, High schoolers, college students, um, pay attention real quick. Um, In many ways, you are on the front lines of this, right? When when we speak of being a sojourner or like a resident alien, like you, you get that. You feel that in your schools, in your friend groups. Uh, Many years ago, actually over 20 years ago, this gentleman named Chap Clark wrote a book called Hurt, and he says that for today's Christian students, life is far darker, far more violent, far more difficult, and far more tiring than adults, including parents, realize. And I would would add, including pastors, realize. So what I want you to hear is um, we recognize that. We want the church to be a safe place for you to come and wrestle with really hard things that even in my generation, uh, we weren't having to wrestle with in the same way to the same intensity and as often. And so I I hope that this is a place where you can come and wrestle, but also a place you can find deep rest in Jesus and being reminded of who you are and that we provide you with the right spiritual and emotional support. And you know what? We're probably going to make some mistakes along the way. So sorry, bear with us. But I think we want to be a church that helps equip you in that way. Uh, now, other, other of us may be sitting here and we're just like, I don't really experience this kind of alienation. Um, I don't really feel that tension personally. I, I see it out there. I recognize it in the culture, in the world, but I don't feel it, right? This, this alienation, this estrangement, this hostility. And it could be for a couple of reasons. One, we are afforded incredible freedom in this country to worship as we like, 
and to practice our faith. And that is a good and a beautiful thing. But two, kind of Western American Protestant Christianity is, is also conformed to the world. And there are a lot of ways that, uh, frankly, we reflect more the values of the world than we do the values of the kingdom. You know, a lot of ways uh, our life has just become, looks just like the world. We, we seek the American dream. We seek personal fulfillment. We seek, uh, we seek wealth. We seek riches. We seek the material good life. Um, we don't uh, really seek a, the sacrificial life of our Savior. But as we live in obedience to God's word, uh, particular as Peter exhorts us here, um, we're going to have a difficult relationship with the world. And we might experience alienation and estrangement with the world. So Peter urges his readers in two particular ways uh, that we're meant to live in right relationship with the unbelieving world and with unbelievers. One's a negative and one's a positive. So first, Peter urges believers to abstain from the passions of the flesh, right? This shouldn't be news to anybody that the Christians are meant to be distinctive in how they live, in their behavior. We don't live as the world lives. We don't pursue the things that the world pursues. And here he talks about the passions of the flesh. Uh, These are overmastering desires, Uh, strong compulsions to possess and enjoy. Uh, Certainly they're the desires for sexual gratification, but they're any appetite for unrestricted instant gratification. They're unrestrained indulgences and they're deadly cravings that threaten to devastate life. One obvious example here um, is things in the area of sexuality. There are things in our world, it's not hard to see, that go against a a biblical theology, a biblical sexual theology and ethic. Um, That the world is is distorting this, the world is uh, promoting multiple alternatives to to God's good design for sexuality. Uh, Sex is a beautiful gift meant to be enjoyed in a covenant marriage between a husband and a wife. And, And there's probably not anything right now in our current moment that is more countercultural, something that the church has affirmed throughout history that is more countercultural. The world is promoting multiple alternatives, and we are called to abstain from those things that are contrary to God's good and beautiful design for sexuality. But this is not limited to sexual passions. It can easily be other things. These are things, God's good gifts to us that we look to for joy and pleasure instead of God. They're idols. And what happens is we, we, we get convinced or we convince ourselves that, you know, if, if, if we just attain this or, or that, then that will give us the joy. That will give us the pleasure that we crave. If, if I just had that, then I would be happy. I would be fulfilled. Uh, they, they promise these things, right? They promise uh, relief from pain. They promise, you know, uh, satisfaction and, and fulfillment. And, and Peter, Peter says, they're not your friends. Uh, they're actually enemies. They're, 
They're enemy soldiers disguised as objects of pleasure and of joy, but they're actually equipped and tasked to deliver deep, deep pain and destruction. You know, they don't simply kind of wage war against our relationships or our reputations. They wage war against our souls. Uh, they're things that we, we become too easily infatuated and obsessed with, um, whether it's money, sex, power, political power, alcohol, drugs, sports, the approval of others, even social media. These things can flame the passions of our flesh and we can become so desirous of them that Peter tells us you need to completely abstain, right? He, he doesn't say be careful to manage them, right? Uh, just indulge in them in moderation. No, he says starve them out of your life. So let's be honest. Are there things in our life right now that need to be starved out? That we need to absolutely run away from? Things that have a greater hold of you than you do of them? Things that we need to turn in the other direction and never look back? And you don't have to do that alone. Find a brother or sister in Christ. We're called to bear each other's burdens. If you don't know who you can talk to, I would love to sit down with you, find another pastor, an elder, a member of our women's shepherding team. You are not meant to do this on your own. But I urge you, as Peter does, take his word seriously. These things can destroy your soul. Not do a little bit of damage, destroy. One other thought here, we, we've talked a lot in 1 Peter already. We, we've been talking a lot in Sunday school and 2 Corinthians about how following, following in the footsteps of our Savior, we are called to live self-sacrificial lives for the sake of others. That is, the, that is the goal of the Christian life, in a sense, as we relate to one another, at least. And we cannot live self-sacrificial lives for the sake of others and for the glory of God when we are pursuing the passions of the flesh above all else. Those two things do not go together. So if these things have a hold of us, we will never be able to love people and live lives of self-sacrificial love as we are called to do. Well, the second thing that Peter urges Christians to do is to keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. So Peter not only urges Christians, look, there are things you need to refrain from and abstain from, sinful behavior, but he also says, here's some things you're meant to do. You're meant to keep your conduct honorable among the Gentiles. So we are to treat unbelievers with honor, with respect, with humility, and with love. And what Peter actually says is the effect of that is that some might actually see those good deeds, see that godly living, the way that you've treated the unbeliever, and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be drawn into a saving relationship with Jesus. He does say, yeah, they may slander you, but they also might be drawn to faith in Jesus. Uh, author Madeline, Madeline Lingle describes when she says that we draw people to Christ not by loudly discrediting what they believe, by telling them how wrong they are, how right we are, but by showing them a light that is so lovely that they want with all their hearts to know the source of it. 
I think that's what Peter's talking about here. See, this kind of living, it serves the good of others. And those others are people who are actually dead in their sins. Uh, our honorable living, uh, it, it not only serves to vindicate us from slander, I think that's what Peter's saying, but it, it actually serves to convert sinful slanderers into brothers and sisters in Christ. Peter's exhorting us, live such good lives in the public arena that you actually silence the slander of non-Christians. He says, you may turn their accusations into praise. Wow. Like this is how Peter exhorts us to treat unbelievers in an unbelieving world. Well, it, it, at the very least, that means that our, con- our, our honorable conduct is that we practice the fruit of the Spirit, right? We practice the fruit of the Spirit um, in regards to every situation that we come find ourselves in, relating with an unbelieving world and relating to unbelievers, love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That's our cultural strategy. Like that's the hallmark of what it means to be a Christian I mean, that's actually what we should be known for. And what Peter is saying is that as we do that, these are the kind of things that you'll be known for. Yes, we're going to be misunderstood a lot. We're going to be slandered. But this is is Peter, and I would argue it's the Bible's cultural strategy. It's the fruit of the Spirit. Well, I do want us to hear what Peter does not say. Uh, Peter doesn't say, do this as long as it works. Do this as long as it's effective. It's not what he says. Our responsibility is keeping our our conduct honorable. He doesn't say keep your conduct honorable among the Gentiles as long as they are being honorable. No. He says keep our conduct honorable. And and, and I think for our moment right now, um, you know, it's really easy for us to, to be convinced that our, you know, our situation, Christians in America, that our situation is so dire um, it's so troubled that we actually have to, like, love and honor can kind of be set aside, right? Because that's, that's not how you win, right? But friends, that's not the Christian way. And, and when we have taken a cultural strategy that, that is inconsistent with the fruit of the Spirit, that is inconsistent with Peter's exhortation here, we need to repent, like individually and corporately. I, one of the ways we keep our conduct honorable is, is that we actually repent when we sin against unbelievers. They, they experience that. They hear that. They see that. We need to be people who are quick to repent. Now, I'm not saying there's no place for confrontation or debate or persuading. But we need to remember, how is it that Jesus spoke to outsiders? How is it that uh, the apostles in the early church in Acts spoke to outsiders? It was always with honor, respect, and gentleness. And I'm concerned because there's just a lot of voices in the American Protestant church that just are really beating the drum that we should be much more antagonistic towards the culture 
that we should use much more abrasive language towards the culture, that we could, should kind of fight fire with fire. Um, it, it's just very antagonistic. It's just not biblical. Um, it's unhelpful. Uh, and and I, frankly, I, I think if we, if we actually keep our conduct, conduct honorable, it's not just going to be evildoers that might slander us. There's probably going to be some in the church that slander us as well. We're probably going to face some alienation within our own body because, you know, we didn't speak to this like we should have. We didn't approach this like we should have. And so I would just say, please just catch yourself being far too antagonistic towards an unbelieving world and towards unbelievers. We, we ha- this is our cultural strategy right here. We keep our conduct honorable. Look, secularism is aggressively confronting the church with all manner of evil and dishonor. But we do not return evil with good. And we treat those with honor whether or not they treat us with honor. What Peter does through his letter, Peter never blames the world. He never incites hostility. His focus is never on the badness of the culture. It's always on the goodness of the Christian, even when confronted by social hostility and alienation. I mean, this is just how Peter and the Bible direct us as we engage with the world. And so Peter says, look, when when this happens, when we keep our conduct honorable, uh, some of them might even be led to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Pastor and theologian Ed Clowney says this, the turning of worldly men to God on account of our godly godly living may not happen quickly, but it will occur. By the final day of God's visitation and judgment, we shall see that some surprising conversions will have taken place, having been to some extent prompted by our piety. There can be no higher and more satisfying incentive to motivate us to, do, to obey these exhortations delivered by Peter. Well, let me just say this. This is really hard. <laughs> like it's just really hard. This is difficult. There is not a simple formula for how this fits in this situation, how this fits with this person, how it fits over here. I don't know what it would look like in every situation for you as the people of God, either individually or corporately, to keep your conduct honorable among unbelievers. I just know that Peter urges us to do that very thing, to pursue that very thing. And so it's gonna take great wisdom. It's gonna take great thoughtfulness going to take great patience, great discernment, and great courage to live by Christian values when they conflict with those of society and be willing to endure graciously the grief and alienation that will inevitably result. That's, that is not easy. It's not easy at all. Well, I, I want to finish uh, by maybe something that's helpful, I'd like to try and put some more tools in your tool belt, okay? Um, I think these are helpful because when I say we need to be thoughtful, we need to think about how we approach, just even our, how we think about the world. 
and how we approach the church's relationship with the world and our individual relationships with the world and individual uh, believers. And there, look, there are lots of resources uh, out there. I just want to mention a few. Um, I, I encourage you wrestle with the quote at the beginning of the, of the um, worship guide from Philip Jensen. Uh, pull, out a, pull out a thesaurus if you need to. I, I had to, so you can. It's fine. A dictionary. Another one written in 1951, this is kind of the standard for kind of how Christians relate to the world by Richard Niebuhr called, called Christ and Culture. And he outlines five different approaches um, to this. Very helpful. Wish I had time to, to do a deep dive into each of those five approaches. Um, another one more recently, James Davison Hunter wrote To Change the World in 2010. Again, he kind of engaging a little bit with Niebuhr's work, he has kind of four different approaches for what, kind of, uh, how we are meant to engage with the world. Um, but I, I want to, I commend those to you and I want to spend just a few minutes um, summarizing a recent article I read. It, it's, it's by a gentleman by the name of Brad East. He's a professor at Abilene Christian um, and he kind of puts puts forth his own kind of four primary modes of, you know, Christian engagement with the world. Um, and, and he heavily influenced by Niebuhr and by Hunter. Uh, and the reason that, that I, it's been helpful to me to think about is because these things, so, so Hunter and, and Niebuhr's, their, their different approaches can often be played off of one another. And these four are meant to overlap. They're meant to be present. And whenever we get more heavy-footed in one, maybe two, and we don't keep a really healthy balance in all four of those, we're going to quickly find ourselves in some just unhealthy and hum unhelpful views of the world. They're not meant to be played um, off one another. They're, they're meant to beautifully complement um, each other. So I just want to briefly run through these four. Um, East says the first is resistance. The church is always and everywhere called to resist evil and injustice and idolatry, wherever it's found, right? So there are things in our society and in our world that we are called to live against and in spite of. We're called to stand against those things and have nothing to do with them and to even speak against those. And then other times that might simply mean that it's just sheer perseverance, these are things that we are not going to compromise on. We're not going to cave. Okay, there are things that we're meant to resist. Uh, his second approach is repentance. We've already kind of mentioned it. The church is always and everywhere called to repent of its sins, crimes, and failures. The evil, injustice, and idolatry that are first and foremost to be resisted are those that are found within the church. Judgment begins in the house of God. Before we speak to the sins of the culture, we need to be addressing the sins of the church. And so we need to be people who practice repentance. We're quick to repent. And we don't repent as because there's some external pressure. We, we, we repent because that's what Christians do, whether corporately or individually. Uh, the third approach is reception. Right? So the, the church is always and everywhere called to receive from the world the many blessings bestowed upon it by God. We believe in common grace. 
that every good and perfect gift is from God and all truth is God's truth. So there's good and there's beauty in the world uh, through God's common grace grace, and and Christians are called to receive those gifts um, as gifts from God. And and so we we should never be naive, we should never be uncritical, uh, but, but when we find these things, we should... Uh, we can stretch out our hands in humble reception. We can give thanks to God uh, for these. Uh, and then lastly, kind of his fourth approach is, is reform. So resistance, repentance, reception, reform. The church is always and everywhere called to preach the gospel. This proclamation has a prophetic purpose. The church is a company of prophets. We are empowered by the Holy Spirit and have a prophetic voice. So when, when God's word uh, is, when it goes forth, when it's announced, it, it has a comprehensive effect and a comprehensive address. Uh, it speaks to heart, mind, body, soul. It speaks to uh, every aspect of our lives and every aspect of creation. It concerns all people in all places. It commands righteousness among the people of God and justice among the nations. So, so where life is not in accordance with God's will, it, it expects and affects change. The gospel, love this line, the gospel generates adjustment in the way things are with a view to what they shall be in the kingdom of God. So when and where the time is right, when and where the spirit moves, The proclamation of the gospel cuts a culture to the bone and that culture will never, ever be the same. So we, as the beloved people of God, we gather together with one another for the worship of God. We gather together to encourage one another. We gather together to be fed from his word and from his table. And in so many ways, just just this, what we're doing this morning is really countercultural. One example, the world is telling you that your true identity is, is where? It's, it's found inside of you, right? Um, my two-year-old baker loves Moana, and he loves Moana songs, and it's so much fun. And there's a couple of the songs where it's, you know, there's some things slipped in there that we're going to have to talk to him one day about and it's like, you know, to see who you are, the secrets inside of you. And I'm just like, no, no, but it sounds so good. But that's the world, even in Moana songs. That's the world. And here we come together and say, no, no, no. The most important thing that can be said about us, uh, the most important um, fundamental identity that can we have God determines that. He says who we are, and that's the most important thing. And so, may God make us those who absolutely abstain and refrain from those things that can destroy our souls. And and might I add, also really hurt our witness. And at the same time, like, may we be those people that treat unbelievers with such honor and love and respect that they might actually be drawn into a saving relationship with him. That's what Peter's saying. So let's go to his table where he promises to feed us for that uh, very mission.
Let us pray. Father, even as we read these two verses that Peter exhorts us, we, we recognize these are hard. These are difficult. We cannot do these on our own. We need your strength. We need your help. We need your Holy Spirit. We need one another. Uh, thank you that you have gifted all of those things so that we might refrain from those things that we should refrain from and we should move towards unbelievers and treat them with honor and love and respect. Thank you for this table where you have promised to feed us, to resource us by faith. Um, and we come with our hands open, uh, needing your grace and needing your mercy. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.